Welcome to the second of the Matrix Law podcast series with me, Richard Hermer, Philippa Kaufman and Murray Hunt. Last week, we looked at the legality of the emergency rules and guidance as it applies in the United Kingdom. But the focus of today's discussion is how other countries across the globe are reacting and in particular, how regimes governed by populists and authoritarian governments are coping. Uh, Later, we'll be discussing the situation in Hungary, in Israel and the occupied territories and in Hong Kong with leading human rights activists in those countries. And this is going to be the first of two podcasts looking at the international response. Next week, we're going to focus on the impact on African nations. First, though, before turning to the international scene, um, let's just reflect uh, on a week after our first podcast on a couple of domestic issues. So the two things that I'd like to discuss are firstly, uh, where we are with the prime minister incapacitated in hospital. What's, What's our constitution tell us about that? And secondly, I'd like to discuss the article that Lord Sumption published in The Times, uh, uh, in which he declared that we are at risk of living in a police state. So let's start first with the question of the prime minister and where we are, who's currently governing us. Um, In some regimes, I'm thinking about the United States, it's very clear what happens if the leader is incapacitated because there's a whole set of rules, normally in the form of a constitution, that set out precisely who's next in line and precisely what their powers are. As all of us know, when Jed Bartlett was forced to step down in the West Wing in the absence of a vice president, the Speaker of the House of Representatives took over. Um, Murray, uh, where do we look for the rules here? The first place to look is the Cabinet Manual. Uh, But I understand that the Cabinet Manual is silent on this question, which is rather surprising, um, which speaks rather a lot about our lack of any clear guidance in these sorts of extraordinary situations when they arise under our unwritten constitution. So it did lead this week to the rather unfortunate situation where we had two or three days of feverish press speculation about whether Dominic Raab was in charge fully, and if so, uh, or if not fully, then what his particular powers were. Uh, And I've had lots of conversations with friends in countries with written constitutions, uh, where they are completely bemused by the fact that our rules are so unclear at such a crucial time. So uh, we don't, where do we, have we got anything to look at by way of piece of paper, law, regulation, guidance that tells us um, currently who has the power to make the decisions? Philippa? No, I mean, I think, as Murray said, the, the first and most obvious place you'd look in our unwritten constitution has been looked at. It's empty. There's nothing there. And there is nowhere further to look. So what you have is... Uh, the, the government itself not being able to tell you exactly what powers are exercisable by Dominic Raab in Johnson's absence. Um, and it seems that at the moment, his authority is being given to him by what Johnson is permitting him to exercise on his behalf. But what would one do if Johnson were incapacitated completely and was incapable himself of delegating in any way? Well, who makes the decision then? Is it the uh, civil service? Is it uh, cabinet having to fight it out? Or, or, or do we just wait to see who moves first in a power vacuum? Well, my, my guess is that the, the cabinet secretary has a, has a contingency plan in the event that the uh, the prime minister is um, it has to be uh, put into um, sedation for ventilation. So um, I'm sure that, that there, there is a contingency plan for that. But the, uh, So I've no doubt that um, within the government's this is something which they've thought through carefully. But the, the difficulty on the outside is 
uh, knowing what that procedural process is. And that's where, again, the lack of certainty, the unpredictability, the, the general source, the cause of anxiety that it gives to people uh, is very unfortunate in an emergency like this. Now, after the um, Supreme Court Brexit uh, decision in the, the, the second one in Miller case, there was a kind of a call then for the need for a written constitution so that we could define the roles between the courts and the legislative and parliament and the executive. It, I mean, it seems now we're faced with this position where, again, we can't turn to a written constitution to find the most basic of answers as to uh, who runs the country. Um I mean, it, it, it would seem that the case for some form of written constitution is comes unanswerable, doesn't it? Well, I certainly think so. And I've certainly... <laughs> we stand alone amongst democratic nations in having no written constitution. And one has to ask oneself why um, so many British people think that continues to be appropriate, particularly in circumstances where we've seen that its absence has caused so much difficulty and controversy around Brexit. Um, It's a basic requirement of a democratic state um, that it's um, the, the, the state itself, its apparatus should be defined in a law that is constituted by its parliament and that everybody understands is the basic law regulating, constituting, defining the powers of the state. I mean, one is always going to have uncertainty, obviously, um, in the interpretation of those laws, but the sort of uncertainties and the controversies that were generated in the Miller litigation or the absence of an answer to this situation would all be remedied if one had such a document. Well, I guess a legal conservative may say, actually, this is all very straightforward and it's all been very clear throughout. The powers with the crown uh, and it's whoever Her Majesty decides is going to lead the government or is that, that's the answer. Well, it's not exactly an attractive democratic position. <laughs> our whole democracy in our unwritten constitution is founded upon the crown having and exercising no political power whatsoever. So it would be completely inappropriate for the Queen to step in. And that just, again, drives home the problem we face in having an unwritten constitution, which in so many ways is just a fiction. One of the things, of course, that uh, was this may now seem a lifetime ago on page 48 of the Conservative Party manifesto in December uh, was to set up a commission um, on democracy and the constitution to uh, start to look at at least some aspects of these questions that we're discussing, Uh, not necessarily a full uh, written constitution. But I think one of the most urgent things, one of the most urgent questions facing both the government and the new leader of the opposition um, is when we do get to um, something like a recovery stage after this emergency, uh, what should now be the focus of that commission, assuming that it still takes place? Because a lot of the concerns uh, that are set out on that page of the manifesto do seem, compared to the current emergency, um, rather esoteric by comparison. Uh, and this could be an opportunity for that commission to be a genuine bipartisan commission. The leader of the opposition might want to consider um, offering to take part in that commission. Um, and one of the most pressing constitutional questions, it seems to me, is how we actually constitutionalise protection for our health service uh, and the right to health, which there clearly is uh, an overwhelming consensus in this country, is one of the most uh, protected and um, fundamental values that we take seriously and we have institutionalised over the last several decades. And impossible to see any real political pushback to that now in light of the way that the NHS has galvanised the country through this crisis. I think that's right. 
And I think there are ways to to think imaginatively about it. In this country, arguments about written constitutions have always got bogged down in, again, rather um, esoteric arguments about whether the courts should have the power to enforce social rights like the right to health. Um, but in fact, the debate has moved on in many countries a long time ago. And in fact, in Scotland at the moment, there's a very interesting process going on called the National Task Force on Human Rights Leadership, uh, which is giving serious consideration to how you give constitutional type protection to the right to health uh, in ways which aren't focusing on what the role of the courts should be, but what the role of the government should be, what the role of the Scottish Parliament should be, how you actually make sure that budgets to these things are protected in advance so that health services are adequately resourced uh, and have the protective equipment and the other things which are needed, which also, of course, stem from human rights law. Well, it may be that one of the long term consequences of this whole crisis is going to be a promotion of social and economic rights, which certainly from a human rights perspective, trying to enforce them has been fairly low down on the list of things we've been able to be successful about. But as the inequalities that are going to be borne out through this crisis become more and more manifest, so might the kind of responding promotion um, uh, 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 of the need to protect those rights in the same way that the kind of health service came off the back of the last great war. Can I move um, then from the, the kind of unknown uh, constitutional position we're in at the moment and just turn to the article that Lord Sumption, the former Supreme Court Justice, uh, published in The Times last week. Philippa, what was he saying? Well, this is certainly uh, uh, somebody who would not support the development of any social and economic rights, that's for sure. Well, he makes kind of Anne Rand look like some radical socialist collectivist, doesn't he, generally? (laughs) I mean, he absolutely railed against the um, latest, uh, against the uh, lockdown restrictions on the basis that he took the view that... Parliament, in passing this legislation, has massively overstepped uh, the mark um, in indiscriminately uh, interfering with fundamental rights, indiscriminately basically locking us, locking the population up, that's all of us, in, in a situation of imprisonment, albeit in our own homes. And um, he considered that this was totally impermissible and he says that even if it were to be said to be necessary for larger social ends however though valuable those ends might be um, this kind of measure treats human beings as objects mere instruments of policy and this all has to be seen in the context of his wreath lectures so if you think remember back a few months ago when he gave his wreath lectures and his argument in the wreath lectures was one all directed towards limiting and constraining the role of the courts in the enforcement of human rights on the basis that human rights themselves must be exceptionally narrowly construed that really there are a very limited number of human rights far far fewer than have been um, identified uh, in European court jurisprudence certainly uh, in the last uh, 20, 30 years, and that really the only rights that can count as human rights are those which effectively everybody in the world would agree upon. And everything else is not a matter of right, it is a matter of politics, and it's therefore down to parliaments to decide uh, through uh, their lawmaking powers 
how rights are to be balanced against other competing interests. What's so interesting about this article is having construed so narrowly the scope of rights, he then is of the view that a measure like this, which is clearly a measure taken by Parliament in the broader social interest, goes way beyond what is permissible because those core rights have been infringed upon. And yet the right he's identifying, the right to liberty, is never it's never been an absolute right. And if one looked at it in the European context, it's not at all clear that, um, uh, that 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 would in any event be looked at as a right to liberty, as opposed to what is happening is our, our freedom of movement is being restricted. But in any event, under any human rights instrument in the world, you would be able to, and you are able to curtail those rights on grounds of necessity and proportionality where you are pursuing a proper interest, such as protecting health and the health of the nation. So, so, so suddenly this um, human rights... Judicial review sceptic has uh, uh, um, awoken up to the um, powers that the states can have over you and the need for courts to enforce it. What's going on with him is he he is a libertarian and um, the problem that he faces is that one of the liberties that he holds so, so valuable and dear is not one which is capable of doing all the work that he seeks to give to it um, so as to justify a limitation on what the states can do such that they're not allowed to lock us down in the way that they are. I mean, I'd say my, I have a couple of takes from it. I mean, I find Lord Sumption a really interesting writer and a really interesting thinker. I mean, I've come from a very different place in respect of politics and the role of human rights, but I've, I, I always find him interesting to listen to and benefit from his kind of historical long view. But the two things that I took from that is one is the continuing naivety about the impact that um, these sorts of events have on individuals, again, taken from his long view over history, because as this, as this COVID crisis shows, it always impacts upon the poor and the disadvantaged more, in precisely the same way that cholera did and typhoid did and the plague did. And um, his kind of neoliberal, well, you've got to have some deaths along the way to keep the economy going type analysis, once again, completely ignores that if you live like he does part of the time in a chateau in France, you're more likely to be safe than people who live uh, in, in harder conditions. And the other thing that I found interesting that because obviously there is there's, there, there's real anger I found in his uh, writing. And it just this might be the first time that somebody like Lord Sumption, who's a product of Eton and Oxford, like like many people, many dear friends of ours in the legal profession, has probably found the state telling him that he can't do something. And that must be a profound impact for some people um, to be told, having had your entire life being uh, ne- never being told you can't do something, uh, to be suddenly told. I found that interesting. But can I ask another question about it? Because he's writing in really clear terms, talking about risk of the police state, um, and he's only stood down from our highest court a matter of months ago. I mean, Murray, do you have any concerns about retired senior judiciary taking these sort of trenchant stances at this sort of time in the media? I think if he is no longer sitting anywhere in any judicial capacity, um, then he is essentially uh, retired from judicial life. Um, and uh, I would say he's probably entitled to... Um, to to express his 
views compared to somebody who may continue to be sitting in a part on a part-time basis or in another Hong Kong Court of Appeal situation, for example. Um, his earlier intervention during Miller, very shortly after he had stepped down, um, when there was current litigation ongoing, I think was uh, rather inadvisable, um, when the matter was still live before the courts, and then appearing as a Supreme Court Justice, a recently retired Supreme Court Justice on Newsnight and expressing a view on the merits of the challenge, I think was probably not well advised. Um, but I think in, in, if he is not no longer sitting judicially, then um, it's fine for him to, to say these things. I think on the substance of what he's saying, I think both on his police state views um, and on his Sunday Times piece about the, the role of um, politicians versus experts in the current crisis. He's saying some interesting things which um, come from a place which might be widely shared at the, at the starting point, but the, the, how far he takes them, I think, is, 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 rather, is rather troubling. And I think in his um, police state piece, um, I think it's rather melodramatic to suggest that um, this, this is the beginning of a, a police state in the UK, his right to raise a, a question which we need to address about whether some police forces are going too far. Absolutely right. In his Sunday Times piece about um, about whether there's a hysteria going on, which is handed everything over to experts. Um, I think he's um, ultimately uh, not correct that nobody's raising these points. I think um, uh, it's it's very much part of the public discourse. When does the lockdown need to be start to be eased? That's about this balancing question that I know is very much at the heart of the uh, the scientific advice which the government is gathering and receiving. At what point does the tipping point come when the, the, the continuing cost of these measures, these extreme measures, um, outweighs the benefit that's being secured by the savings of, saving of the lives? So that is a, a debate which is lively and going on. And the way in which the government is dealing with it, I think, um, is continues to be, in my view, quite impressive with the scientific expertise at the heart of it. Um, and this is what, in a way, Lord Sumption in his wreath lectures uh, has called for. Um, Politics operating informed by expert advice. In this case, it's expert scientific advice rather than legal advice at the moment. Um, I'd like to see the legal advice take a bigger role than it currently is. Um, but that's really the model um, of politics working quite well with scientific advice at the heart of it. I totally agree with you, Murray, that that, that, that is exactly what is going on. And what's so troubling about Sumption's piece is that he doesn't, he is actually not um his view is that there is no balancing to be done in this situation there is one argument he puts forward which is a rights-based argument and then he moves on to an economic argument the economic argument is one where you are balancing interest but his rights-based argument is that there is nothing to balance here these rights are fundamental and there is no justification for locking people up so who would have thought just 24 hours after the three of us human rights lawyers give the government a uh, clean bill of health in our first podcast, along comes the most author the most right wing justice we've had on the Supreme Court to tell us that the human rights of everybody are being violated. It's, um, it's strange times. As any keen historian of tyranny will know, there's little an authoritarian likes more than a good public emergency as an excuse to consolidate power. And it's been deeply concerning to see this play out in real time across a range of countries. In the European context, the petri dish in the, of the rise of authoritarian governments has been in Hungary. Here, Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party have been seeking to centralise power and undermine the democratic and judicial checks on it for a number of years. And we're joined to discuss how the COVID crisis is impacted upon all of this by Stefania Kaprotskije, 
executive director of the Hungarian Civil Liberties Union, one of the leading human rights organizations in Hungary. Indeed, a reflection of Stefania's uh, organization's influence is the fact that the ruling party is always seeking to uh, restrict its activities. Um, Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us in what must be an incredibly uh, difficult time in um, Hungary. Um, before we talk about the, what's going on with government and law, could you just let people know what's happening in terms of public health in Hungary in response to the COVID crisis? Sure. Thanks for having me and good afternoon to all of you. Um, so in terms of the health situation, we have about 1,000 confirmed cases of uh, COVID-19. Uh, that's for a population of 10 million. But you also have to bear in mind that the Hungarian government is also um, pretty strict in terms of testing. It means that uh, only serious cases or where there's a clear link uh, with um, with an infected person is then there they provided uh, then they provide tests um, and out of that one thousand confirmed cases we have about sixty deaths which makes it uh, a pretty high death rate but again you always have to bear in mind that uh, and comparing these statistics that. Uh, Different countries have different approaches to testing. And what about um, restrictions the government put in in terms of social movement? I mean, in this country, we're we're allowed out to exercise once a day. Apart from that, we've got to stay in. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are there any similar restrictions being put in place at the moment in the cities or in the countryside? Yeah, there are restrictions um, um, in place, various restrictions. Um, One is, uh, it it concerns movement. Um, also, you are allowed to go out for exercise, but only alone or with someone that you live in the same household with. You can't approach people who you are not living with for with more than one and a half meters. Um, and there are also uh, restrictions on at what time you can go shopping. So people above 25, uh, no, 65 years old, they can go in the morning and uh, the rest of the population uh, later. Um, so these are the main uh, restrictions at the moment, but they expire on Saturday, which is Easter Saturday. And we are waiting for a government decision actually to be announced today about how this will change. Uh, there is a widespread talk and a lot of uh, press statements from uh, prominent politicians that uh, Budapest, the capital, uh, is the center of the epidemic, and that in Budapest we are not um, not taking these restrictions seriously enough. So we are expecting uh, that there will be restrictions applying, especially to Budapest, but maybe even a ban or a fur- further restriction on on leaving your house. Uh, um, all of us who concerned about the rule of law and civil liberties have been watching events over the past years in Hungary with a growing sense of alarm as uh, Orban and Fidesz have sought to consolidate power. Um, What's been going on in that context during the COVID crisis? So the government uh, announced a state of danger, which which is a special legal order on the 11th of March. And then for 10 days, it seemed that we are living in a normal democracy, in a normal country, where in a crisis, political parties come together and they look for answers um, and solutions together. 
so there were uh, meetings between the political parties uh, in the parliament and the word that came out, it said that it was constructive. And then the government issued its bill, uh, the so-called protection on the, against the coronavirus um, bill, and it completely changed the whole landscape because it does... It it does two things. It seeks a parliamentary mandate for the government to rule by decree without a sunset clause or without any effective um, check by the parliament on this. So it can go on forever. Uh, and you have to bear in mind that the, the Hungarian government has a two-third majority in the parliament. So it doesn't mean that uh, you know they would have to face an opposition that is especially difficult during these times. They have a clear majority in in the parliament. So, granting, so it simply wasn't needed. A decree. It, it, I mean, your concern is in part because they didn't actually need one. They didn't need it, um, and it's also uh, another important provision from this bill concerns uh, fear mongering. So they amended the criminal code by extending the definition of fear-mongering. Uh, fear the amendment orders to punish uh, up to five years imprisonment to those who utter or disseminate false information that undermine the effort to protect the country in a state of emergency. The wording of the law, as you can hear, is very vague. Uh, so it can result, of course, in self-censorship and um, among journalists and internet users. So this is also a real concern. And we are talking about uh, a government which is especially hostile to independent media. So it's uh, one of the main criticisms towards the prime minister that he never answers questions from the independent media. He never he have given a press statement or a, a, sorry a press conference. Uh, only on uh, uh, only twice since he's in power, so it's ve- it's a very rare occasion. Uh, and at the beginning of the crisis, it seemed that even independent journalists can ask questions and they will receive the answers. But then, of course, because of social distancing, they moved these press uh, conferences into the online sphere. So independent journalists are again hindered from asking questions. So in order to fulfill their job, they are, of course, looking for sources. But given this criminal code provision, they have to be especially careful uh, when reporting about cases. While in a pandemic, in an epidemic, it is essential for the public to be informed. And uh, with the parliament, it's essentially switched off from being a check on on government power than in the independent press could be one of the outside checks on what about the courts in terms of the role of the courts at the moment in providing Mm -hmm. a check to this what would seem like a power grab yes so that's a, a that's a very important question uh we had for like two weeks um um, um, a break in, in the operation of, of the courts. But uh, since last week, the courts, and especially the civil uh, law courts, can operate and they should do so um, in a social distancing way. So they should do it online. No one really knows yet how it will work. This is a completely new uh, phenomenon and technology, and especially for, for this kind of uh, uh, procedures, it's it's really new. Uh, that's the one thing. 
And the other thing uh, that uh, is crucial about the courts is the role of the constitutional court. Uh, in Hungary and in many democracies in, in uh, Europe, the constitutional court can be an important um, check on, on government's power because they can ha- look at the laws uh, in, a, in a more comprehensive way, looking at the constitutional principles. Um, and therefore, that's why we advocated for uh, this uh, law against the coronavirus that um, that um, I mentioned before to include provisions that would extend uh, the pool of people who can file a submission to the Constitutional Court and have a very clear and short time limit for the Constitutional Court to rule on those cases. Um, of course, it didn't pass. So it seems right now that the Constitutional Court, again, will not... Uh, play a huge role as it should in uh, in being a check on on government's power. So it's really up to the press, uh, press and civil society organizations. Is the fear mongering provision going to impact on civil society organizations? I mean, is there a concern that if you put out materials criticizing the government's response to the crisis, that you too may find yourself subject to criminal sanction? That can very well be, but also just individual citizens who are putting up on information on one of the social media sites can can also face this uh, criminal provision because no one really knows how, how it will be applied. And of course, the government uh, pro- uh, promises leniency and uh, common sense and, and the like. Uh, we have reason to believe, not to believe that. Do you know yet whether the power has been exercised, and if so, in what circumstances? Uh, I know about one case when when this was exercised, and it was uh, two citizens who were uh, putting false information um, about uh, hand sanitizers on uh, on the social media, and actually that was a case in which there was really malice on the side of of. Uh, of that two per- people, um, but we have what we have seen in the in the past in the past ten years uh, that uh, even without an application of these rules, they have a chilling effect because you think twice, especially if you are faced personally with a five up to five year imprisonment. So we we have seen a real chilling effect. Stefania, can I ask you, to what extent, from your perspective, do you see the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights uh, as any form of check on um, what Orban is seeking to do generally and also now during this crisis? So uh, in normal times, uh, the European Court of Human Rights is one of our key uh, forums where we can bring cases, and uh, we have many pending cases at the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, uh, albeit being sometimes not timely enough, um, we we find it an important uh, forum. Uh, during this time, we we haven't actually started uh, thinking about bringing cases there. Um, it's it remains to be seen. 
what role the European Court of Human Rights can can really play in this regard. I mean, does Orban does Orban see it as something that limits his power, or does he see it as something he can rail against to kind of increase a populist agenda? So there were more than one. Uh, press uh, statements uh, and statements by the prime minister in the parliament that uh, in a way attacked the legitimacy of the European Court of Human Rights as uh, saying that these judges, these people were not elected by the by the people, so they can't overrule uh, whatever the populist, popul- uh, the, the elected uh, government uh, is is uh, doing so that's a very typical populist argument that uh, because I was elected by the people I can do whatever I want because I was elected basically that's the argument um, so even uh, before this crisis uh, started uh, there was on top of the, the government's communication agenda, one issue that is related to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights ruled in many cases coming from Hungary that uh, inmates deserved um, compensation because of the poor conditions that they suffered uh, while being imprisoned. And this proved to be a wonderful case for the government to advocate against to the European Court of Human Rights. And I don't think I have to explain to your listeners why is that, because you are all too familiar with this. Stefania, can I ask a similar question to Richard's question about the Council of Europe, but this time about the European Union? Because uh, it's been very noticeable that um, Hungary, even during the last few years, with the drift towards quite authoritarian um, measures, Hungary has remained a member of these international organisations, um, although, of course, we all know about the Article 7 proceedings um, and uh, the monitoring that's going on by these international organisations, Hungary wishes to continue to remain part of the EU and the Council of Europe. Um, the A number of EU governments issued a joint statement, about 15 governments, uh, last week, I think, um, saying how important it was that states in dealing with the coronavirus emergency must still have regard to um, European standards of democracy, human rights and the rule of law, and including some specific things such as limited duration, etc. Um, I understand, I don't know if this is correct, you may, you may be able to tell me, um, that Hungary itself joined that statement and issued that, uh, uh, signed, signed the, the, the statement. So my, my question is, um, how do you, as, a, as a, an NGO based in Hungary, uh, bridge that gap between the international standards which your government says it continues to abide by um, and bringing political pressure on it domestically? Uh, and secondly, uh, what is there that you would like to see the international community doing to bring to bear those international standards on the Hungarian government? I think that's a very important part of this crisis. Um, and I will talk about it from a slightly different angle, but then I will try. It. I, and I think it answers your questions as well. So the biggest threat right now to Hungarian democracy uh, is, of course, the Hungarian government, but that's nothing new. But the dismantling and the possible dismantling of the European Union as um, as a as an institution that can uh, check uh, 
government measures and can have actually sanctions towards the Hungarian mm-hmm. government is is a real problem right now. I, I see, as many of you see, that um, the European Union is probably coming out weaker from this crisis. Um, it also means that uh, national states will reinforce their their power over shared European Union principles and policies. It also means that the European Union will be less in the position of um, of um, of um, making sure that some of its members, including Hungary, but you could mention Poland as well, is keeping within the lines of the rule of law and fundamental rights. Because the European Union has been one of the key vehicles for us to advocate uh, for these principles. Um, And in some cases, that was successful. There is an ongoing so-called Article 7 procedure against Hungary, uh, which is basically a rule of law procedure. It checks whether a certain government um, is... um, complying with the European Union's basic principles. Um, and there was there were talks about even further uh, strengthening the, the European Union's um, powers in, in checking whether a member state is uh, keeping in line with those principles. And that's probably not a possibility in the near future, which uh, brings us into a very strange position are a very difficult position because we won't even have this uh, outside protection. Uh, and how we are tackling this um, is, is a good question. We are just at the beginning of this crisis, so we are needing to find new ways. But um, this is it is true now probably more than ever that we have to find a solution within the country. Stefania, thank you. Thank you so much for that. I mean, I think one thing that it might be that uh, European cooperation at the governmental level becomes more fragmented, but I mean, never has it been more important for those of us in the human rights movement to be working in a kind of a coordinated way. And listening to you talk about what's going on in Hungary, mirrored all over the place, Poland, and anyway, we just want to, we stand in solidarity with you. Thank you. Um, now we're not we're not going to let you go though without um, asking you one thing that's a bit more frivolous because we all know if you do human rights all day long, you still got to maintain a sense of humour and enjoy all the good things in life. So the one thing that we'd like to know from you, we've already did it last week, but is you can either tell us either one thing you're going to do in the unlikely event you get any free time during this crisis the one thing you're going to do that you've been meaning to do for ages or a book that you've been meaning to read or you would recommend everybody to read during the lockdown okay uh so as i said before i have an 11 month old son so so you've got plenty of time on your hands i don't really have and a partner who is working (laughs) as well so uh, what i'm mainly reading are children books (laughs) but actually uh, there is a book that i really like uh at this time is, and it's mainly pictures. It's a beautiful album, uh, pictures of, from different countries and of landscapes, of streets. And um, I really enjoy looking at them. And I really hope that one day 
we will be able to travel again to those places and meet in person. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So we're going to turn now from Hungary to Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. It's not actually an unnatural link because a fascinating feature of populist governments is how they stick together. And notwithstanding Fidesz's long history of anti-Semitism, including the way it targets George Soros, the Netanyahu government has been developing ever closer ties with it. And here to discuss the position not only in Israel, but also in the occupied Palestinian territories, is Israel's leading human rights lawyer, Michal Svart. Michal has a long history of representing both Israeli and Palestinian human rights organizations in legal challenges before Israel's highest court. He's a regular contributor to the media and author of a number of books, the latest being The Wall and the Gate, Israel, Palestine and the Legal Battle for Human Rights. Michal, thank you so much uh, for joining for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a delight to be with you. Before I ask you about the the politics uh, of the coronavirus in Israel and in the territories, can I just uh, ask you to explain what's going on firstly in Israel and then secondly in the occupied territories in terms of the public health response, in terms of lockdown, restrictions on movements, etc.? Well, um, just like uh, other parts of the world that were... um that had uh, um, expulsions of, uh, of the coronavirus, we are under uh, almost a complete lockdown. In Israel, we're now um, closed in our homes, basically, apart from certain exceptions. Um, you're not allowed to go out um, farther than 100 meters from your, um, where you reside. Um, the working places have moved almost completely to work from home. And only essential uh, workers are allowed in the streets. Um, there have been uh, a few places that uh, were under a stricter, even stricter uh, lockdown, uh, where, the, um, where the pandemic has um, been uh, on the rise um, very rapidly, like Neibrak, an ultra-Orthodox town near uh, Tel Aviv. Um, and in the OPT, the same thing. Um, the uh, Palestinian Authority has issued uh, emergency orders uh, prohibiting uh, movement in the in the countryside and between the cities. And so we're all now under some kind of a of a closure. Um, not only Palestinians; Palestinians are used to it from uh, security-related uh, um, um, steps taken by Israel in times of. Um, of friction, uh, but now Israelis are feeling this kind of uh, um, measures being imposed on them, of course, for a different reason. Um, we've had more or less 10,000, sorry, just to say that um, we had more or less 10,000 cases, um, confirmed cases of, uh, of infection in Israel, and several dozens, maybe a, a bit a, a more than 100 in in the West Bank, uh, 12 confirmed cases in Gaza. Uh, but that's, uh, I think, an illusion when it comes to Gaza and the West Bank because uh, these two places are actually ticking bombs. Um, the uh, density of population in Gaza is uh, probably the highest in the world. And uh, if uh, these 12 confirmed cases will uh, rise, it can, it can explode in a matter of days. 
and they don't have, maybe we'll talk about it later, but they don't have the equipment uh, to deal with it for many reasons, but mainly because of the siege on Gaza that has been going on for 12 years now. Well, let's definitely come back to that. Can I ask you first, though, about the kind of the impact on politics? I mean, prior to the onset of the COVID crisis, Israel was already in a state of flux. You'd had your third uh, election. It looked as though uh, uh, the opposition were going to be given the chance to form the government, potentially for a moment, even with the joint list, the Palestinian, the uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, coalition. Uh, Netanyahu was about to face trial on a string of corruption charges. Uh, that all appears to have changed. Yes. Well, the uh, public health crisis coincided with uh, a political crisis uh, like no other in Israeli history. We have been um, um, already a, a whole year in a political stalemate. Um, three consecutive uh, um, election campaigns resulted uh, in an inability to, to form a government that will enjoy a parliamentary majority. And um, just before the coronavirus crisis erupted, uh, it seemed like um, the no, no to Netanyahu coalition that is was created by people from, from parties uh, from completely different ideological uh, um, um, locations on the political spectrum that all had one joint uh, um, interest and that is to uh, end the Netanyahu reign in Israel. So it seemed like this very um, weak coalition, loose coalition, was about to make a history and uh, have a, a, a parliamentary majority. And then the coronavirus crisis erupted. And as in every or many places, when in times of emergency, the uh, executive suddenly has much more power than in ordinary days, uh, our government and Netanyahu as, a, as the prime minister has taken the liberty to start legislating. And we, we've seen a, a tsunami of, uh, of emergency legislation by the executive, by the prime minister, more than 50 emergency regulations that were issued in, in, in a matter of days. And I'll give you two of them, which will, which will uh, help uh, the audience to understand how, the, how uh, politically he has benefited from the um, public health crisis. One of the first emergency regulations that were issued was a shutdown of the, of, of the courts. And that happened two days before the opening trial of one Benjamin Netanyahu. On the 17th of March, his trial was supposed to begin, making it even more difficult for him to get out of the political corner that he was in. And then on, the, on March 15, two days before, his justice minister, who is one of his greatest allies, um, issued um, a deci the decision, the emergency uh, uh, order, to, um, to shut down uh, the courts. So up till now, although his trial was supposed to begin, it didn't. And since then, he, made, uh, uh, he signed many uh, uh, emergency regulations uh, with a, because of the political uh, stalemate and because of the, of, of the parliament not being able to create any majority, the oversight that the, parla that the parliament is supposed to provide over the acts of the executive is almost non-existent. 
So, you know, we've always said that Netanyahu is driving our country towards an authoritarian uh, regime. Now we're seeing it, actually seeing it. And what's been the role of the courts? I mean, you know, Israel has, the, 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 I mean, the Israel Supreme Court is held in internationally in very high esteem. Um, what's been the 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 role of the kind of the Supreme Court, if any, in being able to either rein in any excesses of power or provide any form of check to it? Well, the court, um, as I said, um, the courts were shut down, but the Israeli High Court of Justice is still working. Um, the, uh, is the basic law that allows the government to issue uh, emergency regulations in times of emergency uh, provides that the High Court of Justice will continue operating because that is the instance that provides um, uh, judicial review over acts of government. So that continues to work. Uh, I think we, we can divide the, the, um, the reaction of the Israeli High Court, which is the, the highest instance in our country, um, to two phases. In the first week, uh, we all were under the... We, we didn't know what to expect, and it seemed like... And, and the government was issuing statements to the end of, you know, we're expecting thousands of people um, dead within days. Um, and uh, I think uh, everyone was overwhelmed and the judges also. As we grew to get accustomed to the, this emergency, um, the court has also became more vocal. And first and foremost, the court became um, a, an arena where the debate can go on. When it doesn't happen in the parliament, at least it happens in court. And that was, a, a, it is a very important role that it played because people, uh, lawyers could go out uh, from their offices and homes to the court. Journalists could go to the courts and there was uh, uh, reporting from the court uh, and uh, Israeli human rights organizations have filed petitions against some of the measures. The Association for Civil Rights in Israel uh, um, challenged the one, uh, several of the of the uh, emergency regulations, including the one that allowed the Israeli secret police, the Shabak, to use digital data on Israeli uh, uh, residents and citizens um, for the fight against the coronavirus, which is the first time ever that such uh, 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 such a permit was given to the to the uh, secret police to to use their huge information database, not for national security, but for another interest uh, um, completely. And the court uh, did two things, I think. One, and the most important, it guarded, it, it provided a protection to the parliament. Because uh, I didn't say that before, but the executive was uh, blunt enough even to take steps not to allow the parliament to convene, which is an amazing thing really a remarkable, uh, unprecedented in Israeli history. And I have to say, even for someone so critical like I am towards the Israeli uh, uh, centers of power, I never thought that I would live to see the day when the, when the government does not allow the parliament to convene. So the court has issued binding orders, demanding or, or coercing the government to allow the parliament to convene. So that's one thing and extremely important. Second thing, it did provide some kind of an oversight over the emergency steps. Um, these are yet to be seen, uh, what would be the results of these, because these are ongoing pending uh, cases. 
Um, in the Shabak case, for example, in the case de dealing with digital uh, uh, information, it ended with somewhat of a, of a settlement in which the, the court uh, did not outlaw, did not uh, um, declare illegal um, the emergency regulations that allowed the Shabak to use its digital data, but gave it, uh, but, uh, uh, gave it a, um, a sunrise clause saying that it will stop being in place within certain amount of months unless parliament in primary legislation will uh, enact a law. And then, of course, that law could be, could be constitutionally reviewed by the court. But in the, uh, uh, the parliamentary case that was before the court, I mean, there they essentially overruled the Knesset speaker who had adjourned the Knesset so as to prevent his own removal and to try and prevent the formation of a new non-Likud uh, government. And the court there intervened and essentially opened up the Knesset, opened up the parliament um, in the face of opposition exactly, from the yes. government. And that was, that was a, uh, a that, that you can't belittle how important, you can, yeah, sorry, you can't, emphasize enough how important this the ruling was, because not only it allowed the parliament to convene uh, in the face of a, a chairperson who was never, who was not elected by the members of this uh, Knesset, he was uh, a, um, an interim uh, speaker of the house, and uh, he was acting on behalf of the prime minister, as um, you know, I called him a Trojan horse. He was a Trojan horse in the parliament. So not only that this decision was important because it allowed the, the Knesset to convene, but also it provided a sense that there is a limit to the power of the, of the executive, of the prime minister. And uh, that was a decision that faced, I mean, enormous criticism from the governing party. Um, at one stage, a potential that they might not even comply with the court order, some suggestion. Um, I mean, how, how does that fit in generally with concerns at the moment about Israel, about attacks on the independence of the judiciary? And the, how might that play out through this crisis? You know, if, we, if I would be talking to you 10 years ago, I would say that the one and only most important issue that divides uh, Israeli politics is the future of the occupied Palestinian territories. Today, I can say that there are two issues that divide Israeli politics. One is, is the issue of, of, the, of the future of the uh, Palestinian territories and annexation and so on. But the second is, what should be the balance between the judiciary and uh, the executive and parliament? Uh, the Israeli right is waging a war, an all-out war on the Israeli judiciary. It does not want an independent judiciary. It, was a, it wants a judiciary made of uh, functioners that uh, would almost never intervene in decisions taken by the government, of course not by the, the parliament. And this is a major, major uh, uh, battle that is being waged today. And the coronavirus crisis has become uh, a, 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 good, um, um, a good excuse to do all kinds of things to hurt and damage uh, the judiciary while the, um, the attention of the Israeli public is completely overtaken by the health issues. And so we're seeing these bills coming up, piling up, and all these measures and all these incitement against judges that are being 
uh, um, blamed for everything bad that is happening to the Israeli public. And that is really a, this is not just a, a, a playing with fire. This is, this is the end of the parliamentary democracy that uh, Israel wanted to be. Where's this taking us politically within Israel? Um, there was talk in the last few days of a potential coalition government between uh, Benny Gantz, uh, who was the uh, main opposition candidate in the last election, and Netanyahu, with the possibility of even Gantz agreeing to annexation of parts of the territories? Um, or are we going to be heading to a fourth election? So um, as we speak now, um, we the, the idea of a coalition, of a unity, type of a partial unity coalition between Netanyahu and his main leader of the opposition guns, uh, is all um, ready. They have agreed on everything, including the issue of annexation, un- unbelievably. The one thing, the one thing that stops them from signing is the demand by Netanyahu that guns will concede that uh, appointment of judges that is supposed to be under the Minister of Justice that should be under guns uh, would have a, that Netanyahu will have a veto power over appointment of, of judges. And that is, and, 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 and that is the only uh, achievement that guns, or one of the only achievements that guns can show the people who voted for him. The people who voted for him did not want him to go with Netanyahu. But now that he does, he at least says, I've saved the judiciary, I've saved the rule of law, I've saved the main traits of democracy. And so it seems like this is, you know, I don't know, I, I, I would never have uh, uh, gambled, I'm not a gambling type, but I would never gamble that Gantz would uh, agree to annexation, that Gantz would go to be uh, a Secretary of Defense under Netanyahu. It seemed like an impossible idea. So I can't say for sure that he will not concede even on this issue. But at the moment, this is what bars them from signing, uh, uh, signing a coalition agreement. So, Michal, we could we could do a whole series of podcasts on um, annexation and what that means, both within Israel and in international law. But just because of time, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on and come back to something you mentioned at the beginning, which is moving out of uh, Israel and looking at the occupied territories, and in particular Gaza, which, as you say, is the most densely populated area on the planet. Um, and just thinking through what the ultimate human rights issues, the right to life, uh, after the population uh, within Gaza. Can you just d- describe what the, what's been going on by way of what we mean when we talk about blockade and what, that, what the impact of that has been on the kind of infrastructure for Palestinians living in Gaza, and not least healthcare? Well, Israel has, have, uh, um, has a, a policy of besieging Gaza for the last 12 years. That means that uh, people and goods cannot uh, enter or exit um, the Gaza Strip without our uh, approval. Uh, of course, there is a, also a border with uh, Egypt, but Egypt is very much in coordination and synchronization with uh, the government of Israel. So we control the airspace, we control almost all at, um, land borders, and we, of course, control the sea border of Gaza. And so um, the people of, of Gaza, and most of them, two million people, are living in a small stretch of, uh, of land, uh, 15 kilometers uh, by, uh, uh, by six or seven, 
uh, and they um, are locked in there. Um, the only goods that come in are those who are being um, approved by uh, the State of Israel and those who are sneaked in through tunnels. Um, a small, to, to, under, to grasp how, how terrible the situation there is, I'll say that, as I said, there are 2 million people there. There are 87 ventilators in Gaza. 87. So imagine there is a, um, a coronavirus eruption in Gaza in the scale of one of the medium uh, eruptions in Europe. That means people will die there without being able to get any type of medical care. If Israel would not change 180 degrees its uh, uh, policy towards Gaza, if it doesn't understand that it is responsible, you know, uh, we won't have a, a, a long and in-depth discussion on legal issues here, but Israel is still the occupier of Gaza. It's a different type of occupation. We don't have a, a, a permanent land presence there, but we are in effective control of almost everything that happens there. And so we are uh, responsible for the health situation there. And um, I hope that uh, uh, this kind of, uh, of a disaster like the coronavirus will make people understand that, um, you know, the cor corona does not know borders. And uh, if we will not take, I mean, I hope people would like to take care of Gazans because they're human beings. But if that's not the reason, at least because this is endangering back Israelis. And so um, the, the complete uh, uh, um, um, besiege of Gaza uh, in order to make the people of Gaza, that's the idea, um, uh, to overthrow the Hamas government. That's, that's a, a one huge collective uh, punishment that we're um, imposing uh, on Gaza. I mean, if nothing else, what this crisis drives home to us as human rights lawyers is that what underpins all of human rights is just a understanding of human dignity and the importance of human dignity, and um, everybody has a right to it. Yes, um, I hope I hope that uh, people around the globe understand that and understand how similar we are. In East Asia, in Europe, in America, in Gaza, and in Tel Aviv. Well, that's on a day that we are broadcasting on the first day of uh, Passover of Pesach. That's a that's a good message to uh, it's a good message to hear. Michal, thank you so much. I'm going to before you go, we are going to ask you for something frivolous because all human rights lawyers know that even in the darkest times we have to smile and right. laugh. And so what I'm going to ask you for is for people who are in lockdown, your recommendation of one thing they should read, and it can't be one of your books. <laughs> you said you, said you want them to smile and so, laugh. I'm not sure my book. <laughs> <laughs> what should it be, well, Michal? Um, I, could, I could recommend uh, uh, many books, but uh, being the Israeli that I am, I'll recommend a Hebrew book, which is, was translated to English. And uh, it's, a good, it's a book by the very famous Israeli author, David Grossman. It's called A Horse Walks Into a Bar. It was, I, I read it in Hebrew, but I'm sure that the translation is exquisite because the translation did win the uh, Man Booker International Prize. 
Uh, and this is a book about uh, a stand-up comedian. And the book describes um, a two-hour session uh, show in which uh, this comedian um, invites his um, um, uh, childhood friend to come to his show. And the whole book is this two-hour session in which the, comed- the, the hero um, gives his uh, a stand-up comedy show. And in that stand-up comedy show, there, you know, it's, it's a book that you actually laugh when you read, but also, just like any good Jewish story, you also cry a little. Michal, we're all going to go get it. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you indeed. Much. So we move now uh, from Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories eastward to Hong Kong, which is another part of the world which was in a state of great flux in the immediate period before the coronavirus took effect. Uh, We all recall the mass street protest that rose up in opposition to the proposed extradition legislation uh, in Hong Kong with China, but then developed into a far more profound protest against the risks of authoritarian rule and links with China. Here to discuss this is Patricia Ho, one of Hong Kong's leading human rights lawyer, who's developed her reputation not least by the representation of minority groups, refugees and victims of trafficking. Patsy, I'm so glad that you can join us. I wonder if I, I, wonder if I could just start off by asking you to describe, before we look at law, the kind of public health position in Hong Kong at the moment uh, in terms of what the steps that the administration is taking to protect the population. Sure. Well. In Hong Kong, I think we're quite unique in that I think the general public has been leading um, measures to combat coronavirus as opposed to having the government lead. Um, Just to give an example, um, when cases started going up um, on the mainland uh, mainland China, um, the health... um, Uh, different health bodies started advocating for us to shut borders. And um, the government was actually very weary of doing that because of the optics of of the politics. You know, we don't want to be separating ourselves from the mainland and so on. Um, But that really um, set a lot of people off um, with more protests um, because we obviously didn't want to bring in lots of cases into Hong Kong. Um, And I mean, this this was an interesting development because obviously it rode on the back of um, the protest that's been going on for, for a long time. And there was already a lot of momentum um, from the public to take, um, just to take action on doing anything into their own hands. And so I think the public really just decided to um, deal with this virus um, and, and all the risks that came with it um, by themselves. So they advocated for closing the borders. They advocated for social distancing. Um, uh, and the public um, basically self-imposed the need to wear masks um, um, all over the place. And um, the government wasn't able to source masks themselves. And what you had happening is a lot of organizations in Hong Kong started distributing masks um, to those who could not afford them, to to old people on the streets, um, to street sleepers, and so on. And um, I mean, basically, for the last two months, you had a scene in Hong Kong where everyone was wearing masks everywhere. 
And it's got very little to do with the government. So the, the kind of the people in civil society have been ahead of the curve. Yes, I'd say so. Um, and, and there's been there's good reason for this, um, because Hong Kong really suffered from SARS. And um, the the. I think there were lots of scars left from that, which which still stir up a lot of awful memories with um, amongst the population. So people really took this seriously. Um, yeah. And how's that likely to play out long term um, in terms of the relationship between the people of Hong Kong and the administration and uh, in turn the administration's relationship with China and more perhaps from a political perspective, equally the way that China sees its relationship with Hong Kong, how is this kind of people power that you've seen, how's that going to play into that dynamic, if at all? I must say it's been really difficult to read. Um, the way that the protests have developed in Hong Kong, it just happened in a way that nobody was able to predict anything. Um, you know, I've been in the field for such a long time. And, you know, in my community, in my profession, um, in the academic world, nobody was able to see how it was going to develop. Um, and then, you know, with coronavirus, um, it was a strange um, opportunity for Hong Kong to take a breather. You know, um, I think that actually nobody's going to say it, but um, both sides, the government side and the protesters um, really treasured this opportunity to to have a breather. Um, and, and it worked well because everyone cares so much about, you know, the, the health situation. So everyone was able to put aside for a moment um, all the other political debates um, and, and it was important because I think that before this happened, before coronavirus, um, the situation was escalating to quite a um, violent and worrying um, degree. Um, there were lots of bombs, um, homemade bombs being found in different places. Um, and there was quite, I think there's, there's beginning to be difficulties within the demo, different democratic groups to identify who was planting these, um, how the movement was developing, in what direction, and so on. And from the government's perspective, they, 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 don't, they don't have any cards left. They don't know what they're going to do. Um, you may, I, I, I may be aware from the news that the mainland government's been trying to um, make some moves in terms of the leadership um, uh, of the mainland officials that oversees Hong Kong politics. And they've been trying to shuffle around to to maybe change the tactics. Um, and we, we didn't really know how that was going to go. But then uh, I, I think that we're just seeing a pause right now. We, we don't since they put in new leadership, coronavirus happened and we have no idea how their new tactics going to play out in Hong Kong. But what we you know, do know is in the meantime, people haven't given up on the protests. Um, every month, whenever there are, um, uh, you know, on, on dates which um, were memorial dates, uh, people continue to go to the, the streets, they continue to protest, and they have creative ways to do that. Um, in Hong Kong, you know, nowadays we have bans of public gatherings of more than four people. So you, you have protesters who walk in lines of fours and then they measure themselves and like they will measure 1.5 meters between each row of four. And it's incredible. 
Um, and then you'll have the police that come and they try to disperse these crowds, alleging that they're breaching um, the rules of gathering. Um, and you still get these scenes um, from from time to time, but they're not that serious at the moment. Well, that sounds incredibly uplifting. Can, 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 I, can I ask you whether the courts so far have had any role to play in responses to the coronavirus in Hong Kong and um, where we are with the independence of the judiciary in Hong Kong at the moment? Um, sure. I, well, the courts basically taken a very cautious approach. Um, I think it's difficult to speculate why um, or, or what, whether there's any um, conspiracy behind this, but, but they've by and large closed operation, stopped operations except for urgent cases. Um, and, and I think this is probably in a similar way, uh, the UK system is happening in a similar way. Um, the, the big impact that this is having is um, pre before this, the courts were very, very busy with um, the protest cases. There were um, thousands of protesters who were arrested on rioting charges, gathering charges, and, and so on. And um, every day you would see rows and rows of these protesters going through the magistracies. Um, and you, and, and I think the Department of Justice was really struggling to deal with the, the caseload. Um, so what was happening was a lot of cases had to be dropped when they, were go, uh, when they got to court because DOJ didn't have enough time to gather evidence. So one of the problems for the protesters right now is because of the closure or, or the uh, delay in some of um, the proceedings, actually... DOJ is getting more time to gather evidence um, against the protesters. So I think that in in this area, it's actually working in, in the government's favour. And um, long term, in terms of the independence of the judiciary, moving, moving beyond the kind of COVID virus, I mean, as a human rights lawyer in Hong Kong, um, confident about the role that they're going to be able to continue to play? I mean, we're mindful you're, you're getting, I think our former president of the Supreme Court coming along as well, who has got a fantastic track record in terms of upholding human rights. But, I mean, should we should yes. we take comfort from that? Um, I'm not taking very much comfort from that, as much as I'm excited to see her um, working here. Um, it's really difficult to say. Look, the, the way the protests have impacted Hong Kong, I think... We will we will have to wait and see um, the the long term impact. I I I don't know. I mean, I think that um, a lot of the a lot of lawyers, um, particularly those who are involved in public interest work, have been very depressed. Um, you may have heard of um, a lot of constitutional challenges that's been happening concerning um, the abuse of power by the police, um, concerning um, how the government's been using emergency laws in Hong Kong to um, deal with the protests. Um, and whenever the courts have been ruling in the protesters' favor um, during that period of time, the mainland government stepped in and they made um, a lot of noise. Um, criticizing the courts in Hong Kong. And every time when that happened, 
you have a strange situation where the Hong Kong courts are still saying that they're independent and they'll make their own decision and that they're not going to be influenced by this. But at the same time, uh, you do get decisions where the reasonings um, are strained and, and you do get a sense that they're bending backwards to try to deliver judgments that in some way, as far as possible, adhere to the rule of law. But at the same time, it will, you know, perhaps not piss off the central government too much. Um, and, you know, it's, it's difficult to criticize um, the court in, in, in how they're doing that. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, I can see that the judges feel that they may prefer to do that in order to preserve some level of the rule of law in Hong Kong, yeah. Um, instead of just letting it all fall apart, um, so so it's difficult, really, really difficult. The most threatening part of of the whole, um, you know, season of these protests, I think, was when the government. Uh, one of the comments made by the mainland government on the judicial review was essentially that um, it is the courts should not tell what the executive can do or cannot do. So and when it comes to decisions made by the executive, the central government has authority over this. And it really puts into question the whole role of judicial reviews in Hong Kong. And if they're going to continue to make comments like that, um, you know, I'm, I'm I can say that uh, people in my profession have been, you know, talking about whether there's any point for us to stay to stay in this area of law. Yeah. So whatever comfort we take from the immediate response in Hong Kong to the to the virus, which sounds incredibly positive, not least in comparison to other parts of the world, we can't take our eye off the ball in terms of the long term protection of civil liberties, human rights and absolutely rule of law in Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. So. I think at the moment, everyone's just, they've been depressed for so long, you know, um, because of the protests and we've been worried for so long. And right now, um, we're just hitting the pause button. Um, yeah. Well, Patsy, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That's um, that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and, you know, as human rights lawyers, you know, we stand with you in terms of the longer struggle to keep upholding the rule of law in 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 hong kong we're not going to let you go there just yet because part of the deal is that you uh have to give a recommendation of a book i'm afraid even in these grim times we've got to find something interesting and uplifting so uh if if people have any time on lockdown <laughs> what what should they be reading so i am going to be completely out of the blue here um, I, it, during my lockdown, have been trapped with three very young kids, and um, it has been very refreshing for me in many ways. And uh, one of the best books I've enjoyed, which really took my mind off everything and made me see hope and love in the world, was a children's book um, called Lost and Found by Oliver Jeffers. And it's about how uh, this boy and the penguin were so dedicated to keeping each other um, company, that they travelled around the world to to do that. And it was lovely. That sounds beautiful and well <laughs> worth reading. 
whatever the age of kids, or if you have no kids, we should all try to sure be reading yes. it. Patsy, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Welcome. So, Philippa Murray, um, three completely um, fascinating discussions with human rights colleagues. Two I found very depressing in terms of Hungary and Israel and the occupied territories. I'm glad we did Patsy last because it was good to have something vaguely uplifting uh, about it. Just, um, Philippa, start with you on your reflections of what you've listened to. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. It's uh, it's very, very depressing, the picture in Hungary and Israel. And touches on what we were talking about last week, uh, why there needs to be so many protections in relation to uh, the introduction of emergency measures and precisely because it is the point of entry for autocrats to gather power onto themselves and we've seen that happening in both those countries and um, really the most humbling thing I think that comes from from that is is to listen to and witness individuals who are really having to work at the coalface where human rights are so valuable and so precious because they are in such danger. And um, it was really incredible and very humbling, I think, to listen to them. Murray. I agree. Very sobering indeed to hear from uh, from the front line in Hungary and Israel in particular, although also heartening that um, that the front line is being uh, fought on uh, from home. Both of both the people we've speaking to uh, working from home very effectively, uh, which I think is extremely interesting. I think the Hungarian situation uh, really does show the importance of uh, the international community articulating those international standards and actually making sure that uh, they're addressing enforcement mechanisms and uh, trying to bring to bear those standards um, on those states which say that they comply with those standards. That really came through, I think, in the talking to Stefania. Um, from Israel, I thought one of the interesting things was the uh, the dangers that it shows for oppositions entering into uh, national unity governments uh, at a time like this. Um, lots of lots of uh, possible missteps there, uh, and I think it's important for all oppositions to think very carefully um, about what the appropriate constructive engagement strategy is in relation to their governments. Um, and in Hong Kong, I thought I was particularly heartened by the by the account of the bottom up grassroots uh, response. Um, the, the debate is raging about whether authoritarian or democratic states are going to cope better with COVID-19. Um, and uh, a lot of the commentary so far um, seems to be casting rather uh, questionable, envious eyes towards authoritarian states. Um, but I think it's quite interesting to hear the story from Hong Kong, um, where Patricia said very clearly that actually uh, a lot of the things that have been done, a lot of the action that's been taken, um, hasn't had an awful lot to do with the government. It's come from from the bottom up. So I thought that was a very interesting account uh, from Hong Kong. Well, next podcast, we're going to, again, keep in the international context, we're going to look at the impact on the African con uh, continent and hopefully also with India. And it will also give us an opportunity to look at what I suspect is going to be one of the real themes of this whole emergency, which is how the virus is going to accentuate inequalities and how it's going to impact upon the most vulnerable uh, in all our societies. And so that's a discussion for next time. But for now, thank you two very much. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Mm-hmm.